things that becomes a challenge for us in our lives is that when our expectations are not met, it results in disappointment. And sometimes our expectations are reasonable and they're not met, and sometimes they're unreasonable and they're not met. But the greater our expectations are about something or someone, and the less that the person or experience lives up to it, the greater gap that that creates, the greater our disappointment in life. And when I think about expectations, I think about the Broadway musical Les Miserables. So I first saw Les Mis years and years ago in Toronto. It was my first big play that I had ever gone to. I remember it. I was in my early teens, and we took the whole day off to go down to Toronto. We took the train down. We went to this, this opulent building, fancy outside, fancy cushiony seats inside. And uh, the excitement and the anticipation in the room was palpable. And then the lights went down, and of course, Les Mis opens with that, you know, really big kind of uh, bombastic musical score. Bum, bum, dum, da, dum, bum, bum. So you think, oh, this is going to be exciting. It's going to be awesome. So, um, you know, I was just mesmerized. So I was, I was intrigued by, I did not know that people could sing in contorted positions as they fell from things and ran and not even miss, like, at all. Their voice didn't break at all. I was, uh, how the whole stage transforms instantly into this representation of the barricade uh, and the Bastille. Like, I was just, uh, how people fighting in the French Revolution could speak such impeccable English with unno- without accents at all was mesmerizing to me and confusing. But uh, after that experience, I was hooked. Les Mis became my gold standard for musicals and for live theatrical performances. So I measured everything else subsequent against that. I'd go and say, oh, it was okay, but it was no Les Mis. You know. So fast forward to years later, Meg and I are dating And when you're dating, you want to impress someone. So I thought there is no better way to impress her than to take her to see the musical, to end all musicals, Les Mis. It was coming to Vancouver, and so I knew I had to take her. She needed to feel what I felt when Jean Valjean experienced redemption. She needed to hear what I heard in the soaring music and the love story, she needed to be drawn in. And I knew, and in fact, I even told her that I knew, that she would agree with me that without a doubt, Les Mis was the best musical ever. There was to be no discussion. Now, you know where this story is going, don't you? (laughs) Looking back, I may have oversold it to her just a little bit. So the curtain goes up. The music, I'm listening, I'm watching her. You know, it's not quite as awe-inspiring as it was the first time that I heard it. It's good. It's still really impressive. But, you know, I I don't know. It was just different in some way. And then the set came out, and as the barricade is blockaded and rolls into place, it was cool, but it wasn't as jaw-dropping as the very first time that I saw it. And the emotions on the stage... And the cast, I mean, they were real, it was engaging, but it, it just, it didn't seem as powerful as I remembered it being from when I had seen it before. And so, 
I asked Meg when we were leaving the theater, so what did you think? To which she replied, it was good, but I think I liked the movie better. The book better, I'm sorry. The book better. You see, the problem in the situation was that I was working off of my memory of this experience. And then I brought that experience and I was trying to bring it from the past into the present reality. And Les Mis, even for me, it, it just wasn't as good. It lost a little bit of its sheen because it wasn't the first time that I'd seen it. I was kind of looking back and trying to think, well, am I over-familiar with it? I'm not quite, quite sure. Maybe you've had a similar experience in your own life. Maybe you went back to a place where you used to vacation and you had just a fantastic time the first time and you went back there and you thought, eh, it was all right. But it didn't live up to that first experience for you. Maybe you reconnect with an old friend and you remember being really, really close, but the conversations aren't as natural or as easy as you found them before. Maybe you look back on your life, on a period in your life, and you think, I was really close to God at that period in my life, or at least I felt that way. And so then you work at recreating the circumstances that you thought led you to that place or the practices, spiritual practices that were connected with that season. And you do all of those things and you think, huh, I don't know, it's just not not the same as it was. You still feel unconnected or like you're going through the motions. So whenever we look at our past and we connect it with some aspect of our present reality and it doesn't match for whatever reason, it's very natural for us to ask why and try and figure out what's going on. Why does this time, this season, this experience feel different than before? During the season of Lent leading up to Easter, we've been going through the short Old Testament book called Lamentations. And in it, the author is looking back and reflecting on experiences and trying to ask profound questions. And a number of the questions that come out are questions that really need to be wrestled with. A place of looking on their past experiences and saying, why, God, why did this happen? Why did these bad things happen? And what then should we learn from them and do about them? We've explored Uh, Good questions about bad things, beginning with the question of why do bad things happen to good people? We talked about why does God seem sometimes to be silent or distant, particularly when we're in the midst of suffering. We talked about why is there so much violence in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Why does God expect us to live with and be at peace with others when there's portions of the Old Testament where he seems so angrily intent on wiping out various nations. And Steph explored with us last week that personal dimension of suffering and saying, why doesn't God just spare us from the storms and the seasons of life? Good questions. And the writer of the Old Testament book of Lamentations finishes their work by turning that poetic lens, because it's a book of five poems, in a different direction. And it's still directing their questions toward God. But they're also describing with and wrestling with that sense of disparity between their present experiences 
and their past experiences, their own harsh experiences, and asking, what did, we ex- what did we expect? Why did we not see this coming in some way? Why did we not expect this in our lives? And what do we actually expect in our lives? So turn with me to Lamentations chapter 4 in your Bible or on your smartphone on version. Lamentations chapter 4, the writer is casting their glance backward now. This is after the events. And they're looking back and trying to make some sense of things and ask, why God? Why did this happen to us? Why is life like this now for us? And I'll be reading from Lamentations 4, verses 1 to 10 in the New Living Translation. The writer says, How the gold has lost its luster. Even the finest gold has become dull. The sacred gemstones lie scattered in the streets. See how the precious children of Jerusalem, worth their weight in fine gold, are now treated like pots of clay made by a common potter. Even the jackals feed their young, but not my people Israel. They ignore their own children's cries like ostriches in the desert. The parched tongues of their little ones stick to the roofs of their mouths in thirst. The children cry for bread, but no one has any to give them. The people who once ate the richest foods now beg in the streets for anything they can get. Those who once wore the finest clothes now search in the garbage dumps for food. The guilt of my people is greater than that of Sodom when utter disaster struck in a moment and no hand offered help. Our princes, they once glowed with health, brighter than snow, whiter than milk. Their faces were ruddy as rubies and their appearance like fine jewels, but now their faces are blacker than soot. No one even recognizes them in the streets. Their skin sticks to their bones. It's as dry and as hard as wood. In fact, those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Starving, they waste away for lack of food, from the fields, and tender-hearted women have cooked their own children, have eaten them in order to survive the siege. Horrific descriptions of life at that point in history. You remember from our previous discussions, the context is this lament, this cry over the utter destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the armies of Babylon in 586 BC. And so this poetry is written by an eyewitness account to the horrors of that season and the violent displacement and the events that they try to wrestle with. And they look at those events and try and wrestle with the question, why God? Why did this happen? And part of the answer comes for them just like it does for us in the form of asking questions about our lives and particularly our expectations about our lives. And then asking, does our expectation match God's work in the world and his character in some way or is there some dissonance there? And for the writer here, there's dissonance and they're expressing that dissonance. And so the author is actually calling us into this poetic way of asking us to explore our own expectations. What is it that shapes your expectations, my expectations about our life? And so here in chapter 4, the author is looking and comparing backwards 
and making the point that our expectations are shaped by our past experiences, good or bad. The author starts off and says, we used to have gold and it seemed shiny and important, but now who cares? That's of no use to us now. We used to be treated with respect and dignity, but now we're slaves in a foreign nation. We used to have food to eat, now we're hungry. We used to be healthy, now our skin just sticks to our bones. Our past experiences, be they good or bad, shape our perceptions and our read on our present realities. Rightly or wrongly. It's like the song, right, by Passenger. You only miss the sun when it starts to snow. Only know you've been high when you feel low. Only hate the road when you're missing home. When you begin to examine and contrast experiences in your life, the author here says, I look back on my life. My life used to be good. And so my expectations were somehow that that would continue, and it hasn't. And so I have this sense of disappointment. I have this sense of anger, and I don't know what to do with that. And they're trying to fish around and process that in poetic form. It's perfectly normal for us as humans. We expect things from our past to kind of continue on in a certain way. And any deviance from previous norms causes dissonance in our minds and in our lives. People of Israel expected that. They expected that their lives would just continue on in safety and security for generations to come because it had happened that way for generations previously. And in fact, they had some good reasons to believe that. And all the while, though, the moral and the spiritual fabric of their nation was not just being frayed, but actually, when you read through Lamentations, being actively torn apart by those in leadership, spiritually, politically, and otherwise. And God warns them over and over and over again and sends prophets to remind them and says, you know, you know in the ways in which you're supposed to be orienting your lives. And you know the consequences for not doing that. But yet you continue to persist. Why? God asks them. And they just continue on, completely ignoring, choosing instead to expect, well, God's protected me in the past, so he's just going to keep protecting me and rescuing me in the future. And so when their, when their uh, experiences are just starkly reversed and upended, when they lose their home, they start to question, why did this happen to me? God, God, why did this happen? Look at the reversal of fortunes uh, mentioned in chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. It says, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Our homes are left to foreigners. We are orphaned and fatherless. Our mothers are widowed. We have to pay for water to drink. Even firewood is expensive. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We're exhausted. We're given no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough food to survive. Didn't work. Our ancestors sinned. They've died. Now we're suffering the punishment they deserve. Slaves have become our masters. There's no one left to rescue us. We hunt for food at the risk of our lives. Violence rules the countryside. The famine has blackened our skin as though baked in an oven. What's going on? Why has this happened? We've gone from being landowners to being homeless. 
We've gone from being surrounded by our family and being well-resourced, from economically secure to paying for water, paying for firewood, from being masters to being slaves, from being princes to being hunted and hung like criminals, to be, from being honored to being treated with contempt among the nations. No wonder the author says in chapter 5, verse 15, joys left our hearts, dancing has turned to mourning, the garlands they would use in celebrations, yeah, those have fallen from our head. You've got to weep because we have sinned and our hearts are sick and weary. Our eyes grow dim with tears. Some of you have experienced this in your own life. You've gone from being in a good place to a place that things changed. You've been gone, maybe you've been in a good place financially and through a whole set of circumstances, you found yourself strapped and bound in debt and feeling like you'll never get out of a hole. Maybe you go as a student from having top marks in your class feeling good about your competency to going to a new environment and feeling like you totally can't even grasp the material now and feeling lost and stupid. Maybe you've gone for your whole life as a person that is really healthy and one word from a doctor changes all of that. Maybe you've raised a couple kids who seem to have turned out fine and then the third one rebels and keeps you up at night wondering what you did different or wrong. Maybe you go from a place of joy and laughter to a place of weeping with no hope. And in these times, in these experiences, it's very natural for us to cast our gaze backward to before all of that and wish for a return to those days, to plead with God, say, God, take away the circumstances. Can we just go back to the way it was Take away those circumstances. Take away those problems that have ruined and upended my life in that way. Steph reminded us last week, it's a challenge that still rings in my ears, seasons of plenty or safety or calm, there really is no need for us to trust in God whatsoever. Because we can do life on our own. We've got the skill and the competency, the resources to do it. One of the most helpful things uh, and books that I have found recently, been reading through it over the last couple of months, um, is a book by Tim Keller. I highly recommend it to you on the topic of suffering and evil. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And when you're faced with questions like this and faced like experiences, why am I going through this experience, God? Keller writes genuinely and compassionately and he reminds us, he says, you know what, there really is no way of really learning to trust in God until you're drowning. God often, therefore, appoints some aspect of the brokenness of the world caused by sin in general to come into our lives to wake us up and turn us to him. And the severity of this depends on our hearts need. One of the largest needs of our hearts here in suburban North America is to be shaken from places of self-sufficiency and places of complacency and to be reminded of our need for God because we have a very good habit and system 
of insulating ourselves from an awareness of our need for God and for others. So our team members tell us and told us a few weeks ago when they came back from serving in Guatemala that when you step outside of that comfort zone that we've created for ourselves, you need to keep your eyes fixed on God and what he's doing because it awakens something in you in a new way and in a fresh way. When you step out in faith, in obedience, and you go and this week invite your neighbor to come to our gathering on Easter Sunday and you feel nervous and unsure whether they're going to say yes or no or whether they're going to reject you or whether there's going to be any complications in your relationship now because they think you're a Christian and that doesn't, you don't know what that means to them. You're outside of your comfort zone and then you need to depend on God and listen to the whisper of his spirit in a fresh and new way. Sometimes suffering is, is the only teacher that can shape some of those things in our lives and in our experiences. But especially when our past experiences have been so shaped by comfort that we actually expect that our lives will continue on rosy and peachy keen, just like the Israelites did. And when this happens to us, we're in a place that when that is not the case even in small and insignificant ways, even if it's just inconvenience, not even suffering, we feel that it's unfair because we are owed something based on our past. And this can come from our expectations and our history and not from reality. And sometimes God appoints things to come into our lives to actually wake us up to that reality and cause our hearts to cry out and dependency on him again. And that's because the second thing that shapes our expectations is not just our past experiences, but also our assumptions, particularly our assumptions about God and our assumptions about ourselves. And when you have a combination of your experiences going along pretty good and an assumption that weds itself or welds itself to that, that you think they've gone pretty good, therefore they'll always go pretty good, and then you actually line up the dots and connect a sense of trajectory in our minds. It's a very human experience. Our assumptions about God and ourselves are kind of built on our past experiences with God and learning and what God has taught us and revealed to us about himself in the scriptures and in our exposure in different places. And so we want to make sense about the world based on what we think is true about God in our own lives. But here again, if we have assumptions about God and ourself that are somehow untrue in some way, when something comes into our life that shakes that, any departure from that expected trajectory of our life creates disappointment in our world. In Lamentations chapter 4, verse 12 It says, not a king in all of the earth. No one in all the world would have believed or would have expected that the enemy could even march through the gates of Jerusalem. Everybody had an assumption going on that they were completely off limits. Nobody could attack them. Nobody could beat them. And so they just lived as if that assumption was true, that God was protecting them and that they didn't have to worry about how they behaved in any way, shape, or form. 
They had expectations. Look at chapter 4, verse 17, about their allies, how their uh, Egypt and Assyria, and you can read about that in the book of Jeremiah, how that played itself out. And they said, we looked in vain for our allies to come and save us. We expected that they were coming. But we were looking to nations that could not help us. No one expected Jerusalem to fall because it hadn't fallen in the past. No one expected their allies not to come because their allies had always come. And they'd always trusted in them before and it had kind of worked out for them. So your expectations are met a few times in a row and that solidifies the underlying assumption that they're built on. Not only have things been pretty good, things will be pretty good. And not only that, quite often we add to that, I actually think now I deserve things to be pretty good. They're going well because, well, they must be going well because I'm a good person. And God actually wants to bring good things into my life then. And see, this is one of the areas where we can see that the people of Israel and in our own thinking and assumptions about God and ourselves, we get so easily off course. Because the people of Israel have been living under this assumption for hundreds of years that they're God's chosen people. And because of that, they're completely safe and secure. No one is coming to harm them. Nothing is going to worry them in any way. No one's going to set a foot in God's temple. I mean, certainly not. That could never happen. God is on our team, they told themselves. No one's going to defeat us. And it's pretty easy for us to kind of jump all over them and say, well, you guys weren't living in any way in congruence with the, the promises that you made to God back in Deuteronomy. When God promised that he would be faithful to you, you promised you would also be faithful to God. You're not living that way, so why should God keep his part of the bargain? But we think about our own expectations and link them to our assumptions in sometimes the same ways, particularly for people here who have a deistic or moralistic view of the world because the storyline can kind of sometimes go like this. I'm a good person, right? So not only do I not do a whole bunch of like really, really bad stuff, uh, I generally not only avoid doing bad things, but I sprinkle in some good things. And so I'm not even at a net negative because I've just, I don't want to get involved with some of that stuff. But you know, sometimes I do a few things, that's fine. I, but you know, the net good in my life ought to outweigh any of that kind of bad stuff. And I mean, compared to some people, I have to tell you, I do a lot of good stuff. I mean, I go to church. Not only that, like I actually serve at my church. I volunteer in the community. I, uh, when that family needed money, I gave money to them. Um, you know, I'm not as greedy or as quick as other people to lose my temper. Uh, and so we begin not so subtly to kind of construct a world whereby a case for our own life and God's part in our own lives. So then we begin to tell God all of these things. And whether we're willing to admit it or not, we very easily draw the conclusion then that, well, God actually owes me a good life because I have kept my nose pretty clean. I mean, I'm no saint, but I think that I at least deserve the big man upstairs to look out for me, don't you think? And you hear this kind of thinking over and over again through the book of Lamentations. The people keep rehearsing all of the good things that they've done. But God, we did this, 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 and this. And, and so God, why aren't you here to protect us now? Why aren't you here to save this? And for people in this category, suffering comes as a complete shock to them. 
Because their assumption is that God will provide, God will protect, God will comfort, because I've paid my dues. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book. He says, some people have the naive view that because they are fairly savvy people or self-disciplined or morally decent or good Christians that really, really bad things simply can't happen to them. And so their misery and distress in suffering is doubled and trebled. It's deeper and wider, coming not at all from the actual trouble itself, but from the shock that they are suffering at all. You see, when you go through your life with the expectation that you have not suffered, therefore you will not suffer, but you add another layer to that because, and you tell yourself that it's true because of the merits of your own life and character and lineage or behavior, that God wouldn't do anything to you you will be thrown into a complete and utter tailspin when something bad, anything bad, comes into your life. You will be shocked that you are suffering at all. But here, the real shock should actually come from our assumptions. Because if you think about it, that assumption is the same way as saying to yourself, getting on an airplane and thinking to yourself, I've done this flight a few times, this flight leg a few times. I've not had turbulence on this flight leg, so therefore, uh, I'm not going to have turbulence on this flight leg. But you would not add another layer to that even and say, you know what? I actually have my gold status with this airline. The airline owes me a turbulence-free flight in some way. Now, when we put it in those terms, we would say, well, that's ridiculous. You, know, they can't, you can't expect that. No reasonable person would expect that in any way. When we put it in those terms, the wrong-headed nature of this thinking is pretty clear. But unfortunately, we don't often examine our lives in terms of the assumptions that we tell ourselves about suffering or about bad or hard things that can happen to us. And when they happen, then we crumble under the weight of the pressure, because like the people of Israel, we expected God to do certain things, and in our minds, he isn't delivering. So if these are unhealthy assumptions, what do we do? Well, I think the first thing is just we need to be aware of our assumptions. Recognize them. Begin to be more honest and open with ourselves about the assumptions upon which we have built and constructed our lives. It's like playing with building blocks. We have to realize that our assumptions and our expectations are two of the building blocks that all of us put into our lives. And they're naturally related. Sometimes they lock together and they actually form a foundation and shape our worldview. And not only that, our expectations and our assumptions then are added to our experiences. We build another layer on that. And then our experiences, our expectations, and our assumptions all together determine the questions that we ask about our lives. They determine the tone of the questions that we ask about our lives. Do we ask them from places of bitterness, anger, resentment towards God or others? Do we ask them from an honest place of questioning? And the book of Lamentations kind of does all of the above. It asks us and calls us to reflect and respond. What are the building blocks that we put into our lives that would give us the resources as people of faith to actually encounter suffering and hardship? 
The first question that Lamentations asks us is, what assumptions do you have about God? What assumptions do you have about God? Do you see God as a kind of a grandfatherly figure up in the sky who never gets upset, is ready to pat you on your head and say, oh, you're such a good person? If so, you are unlikely to believe that God would ever get righteously angry with sin. And that's bad theology. We see this in the book of Lamentations. God pours out his justice against people who have persisted in generations and generations of sin. And it is shocking to them because they think of God as nothing more than benevolent and kind and therefore their best interest politically, economically, and otherwise. The scripture reveals to us God's character, that he is compassionate, but he is also just. He is slow to anger, rich in love and mercy, but 